When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and out tip-off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Welcome to the latest March Madness 365. I'm Andy Katz. On this week's show, I'll be joined by West Virginia head coach Bob Huggins, who should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way, and hopefully will be sooner than later over the next coming years. And Davidson's Kellen Grady, who has done some wonderful work on social justice. Huggins will dive deeper into our current landscape in college athletics with the awakening of social justice, the empowerment of student-athletes, and the global pandemic that has us all on edge. And then we'll get kind of a hard segue here, but then we'll get to his dream player. I gave him 10 categories to pick from throughout his head coaching career. Uh, we did the major stops, the high major stops, Cincinnati, K-State, and West Virginia to come up with his dream player. This is week five of doing this with past shows with North Carolina's Roy Williams, Syracuse's Jim Beheim, Florida State's Leonard Hamilton, and Auburn's Bruce Pearl. Grady will discuss his grandmother's activism during apartheid in her native South Africa and how that inspired him to do more here with a program he started in his hometown of Boston. And of course, we'll have my Cats ranks, and this time, the top 10 clutch players from March Madness over the past 10 years. Now on to our first interview with West Virginia head coach, Bob Huggins. Hugs, we're going to get to... Um, your dream player here. I'm going to give you 10 categories. You'll give me a player from each of these categories over your illustrious career, Hall of Fame career. Ultimately, I believe will happen for you. Uh, but first, um, the unprecedented times we're living right now, uh, COVID-19 over the last uh, four months, um, racial unrest, social injustice, systemic racism uh, that has been going on across the country really for hundreds of years, but now bubbling up. Um, I just want to get your viewpoint, first of all, on why you think this moment in time is different, why we're seeing students and athletes feel even more empowered, coaches speaking out uh, across the country. Why do you feel this moment in time is different? Well, I think, I think it's been building up, Andy. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's been building up and, and then, and then obviously, um, there's been a grave injustice done. So I think, you know, it's a combination of a lot of things. You've had, um, and I thinking back to your career, um, you've always empowered your players uh, to speak up, to speak their minds. You've had a lot of, uh, you know, players that, that uh, I think have had a great voice on this topic over the course of your career. Um, why have you felt, before all of this, to allow your players to, to have that voice? Well, Andy, obviously, you know, it's America, you know, the land of the free, the home of the brave. And I think 
that's all of us. And there's times that, you know, I've had to speak up and say some things that maybe weren't uh, as well received in some areas as others. And I felt like, you know, my players have the same right. And, you know, and I've had some guys, very intelligent guys, very intelligent guys that I thought had a lot to say. And, and, and at that time, a forum that made a difference. So it was a combination, I think, of a lot of things like most things are. What do you think life will be like when we're back on campus in the fall for students, student athletes with the, the combination of getting everyone together, feeling empowered at the same time dealing with COVID-19? Well, Andy, I, I wish that uh, the great minds that we have working on on this virus would figure out or could figure out, maybe it's a better word. Uh, what do we do? What do we do? You know, I mean, figured out chicken pox, figured out the measles and the mumps. And I, and I know that this isn't them, but we've, we've come up with antidotes. We've come up with ways to work around all those, which is what's made this country so great. And I just, I just, hope and pray that sooner or later we come up with something that, uh, you know, it'd be great if we could, if you caught it once, you couldn't catch it again. I mean, that'd be terrific. But I guess at this point in time, we don't know that that's possible. You know, early on, you partnered up with other high profile people in the state of West Virginia, Senator Joe Manchin of, of about wearing masks. And you guys were right there early out front on that. Why did you feel it was, important for you who are one of the highest profile names in the state to make sure you're out in front saying, you know what, it's important to wear a mask. Well, you know, we're a, we're a state that's not extremely populated and, and you know, we need, we need everybody that we can, that we can muster up. So, um, I, you know, again, it was Andy, it, it, it's a right thing to do. I'm not a, as you know, I mean, I'm not a political guy. I'm not going to stand up and, and preach politics to anybody. You know, I think everybody has the right to choose. But I think in in situations like that, where people who know a whole lot more than I know ask me to help, I'm going to help. Well, and obviously, you know, this shouldn't be political. Somehow it has become political. But uh, when it's health and safety, obviously, it, it should not. Um, but maybe that's not true. It's been political since the jump. I mean, one one doctor said this, one doctor said another thing. You know, it, it it's been political from the beginning. It, it, there's there's rarely anything that goes on in this country anymore that doesn't have at least an air of politics to it. That is true. I, I wish that wasn't the case, but that is true. Um, as we get ready for students to repopulate, I know there's voluntary workouts. We'll see what happens later in the summer. Um, how are you preparing with your players? I know you had the Zoom calls, obviously, like everyone else early, but um, how do you see it, you know, playing out once you get your players back on campus, certainly in this first phase, when we're going to have to just sort of see, you know, how we integrate the the players with voluntary workouts and then slowly bringing them back together. Uh, hopefully, you know, if, you know, once we're testing and and people hopefully are testing negative to at least get them back on the court. Oh, we're blessed. Uh, we're blessed to have uh, two team physicians that are with us. Uh, at least one of the two is with us every day. Uh, so they not only 
uh, are well versed on uh, what's going on medically at that time. They're well versed on our guys. They 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 know our guys because they've been around them every day. And we're blessed to have uh, one of the premier hospitals really in the country right there on campus. And they're all great Mountaineer fans. They're all people who work with us on a daily basis. It's it's they know our guys. Our guys are great at going to the hospital and particularly the children's hospital and seeing kids that are afflicted with one ailment or another and 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 making themselves visible and 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 I think the the appreciation for uh, them reaching out certainly and and then us in turn reaching out and doing really the only thing we can do is be visible and 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 hopefully put a smile on somebody's face that otherwise wouldn't have one and before we get to your dream player, how how cautiously optimistic are you that we will start on time and, and have the season we all hope? Well, I, I think it, there's a, a long time to go. You know, I mean, it's we act like it's going to start tomorrow and it's not going to start tomorrow. So, I mean, I'm I'm optimistic at that that uh, we'll start on time and and hopefully everything will run smoothly. No, I do as well. Uh, with a daughter going to school, starting her freshman year in the fall, uh, I'm living and breathing it every day and just hope that uh, things will will be better as we get closer to the fall and then deeper into the fall. Um, all right. So I'm going to transition hard segue here. Uh, I've got 10 categories. We've done this over the last four weeks. Roy Williams, Jim Beheim, Leonard Hamilton, Bruce Pearl. We've come up with a dream player. Some have just chosen... Uh, their time at their particular school. Others have gone a little deeper if they've been at other spots. So I'm going to give you a category and you tell me which player best sort of epitomizes that category for you uh, during your career, however you choose to do it. So first one would be your quarterback, your playmaker. Who would fit that? Undoubtedly, Nick Van Exel. Nick was terrific. Uh, he, He had a great way with people uh, his teammates loved him, and he was, as we all know, extremely talented. And I think the other guy was was probably Clint Stewart at Kansas State. I mean, he came in and really, uh, when we came in, he really tried to grasp what our philosophy was, what we wanted done, uh, and and really did a great job. And and we ended up we should have been an NCAA tournament team, and and we kind of got snubbed. Uh, by the committee that year, but without Clint, we wouldn't have had a chance. I mean, he, I, I would say those guys, but I mean, you can't, you can't compare anybody to Nick Van Axel. All right. Mr. Clutch, who would that be? Well, in that, uh, Deshaun Butler hit seven game winning shots, uh, in 2010 on the way to the final four, I think without a doubt, uh, Deshaun would be, the number one, but I had a guy at Cincinnati named Herb Jones who made incredible plays for us uh, down the stretch on a team that also went to the Final Four. So I would say Deshaun Butler, Herb Jones. This is a tough category because you've had so many. Who would be the best athlete? Mm. Well, I think I think when most of these categories, it starts with Kenyon Martin. Mm. To have a six-nine guy that could run the way he could run, jump the way he could jump, and move his feet the way he could move his feet, and have a incredible basketball IQ. I mean, I think Kenyon stands out. Although Herb Jones was a phenomenal athlete as well, as was Ruben Patterson. 
All right, we may move some people around here as we go because uh, I think you're right. You might want to put someone in a different category. All right, top shooter that you've coached? Uh, I would say Tony Bobbitt. Tony could really shoot it. Uh, Cartier Martin could really shoot it. Steve Logan obviously could really shoot it. You know, I think it's hard to to separate those. I think Cartier got on a roll at the end of the year and shot it as well as anybody. And, you know, Logan, uh, in my mind, should have been the national player of the year for the year that he had. He outscored three teams himself. Think about that. Three teams he outscored by himself. So here's a question. Do we move him, this next category, for bucket getter, a guy that would just get you buckets? Could that be Steve Logan there? Well, it's hard to argue against Danny Fortson. Ooh, you're right. Uh, you know, Danny, Danny shot uh, in the mid 60%, you know, for pretty much for his career. So when you threw it in there, you pretty much knew something good was going to happen. And, and, and how, do you, how do you not say something about Deshaun Butler as a bucket getter? seven shots to win games and, and numerous other games that, that he turned around with with flurries that were uh, he had a, a sprained ankle and I didn't think there was any chance he could play. I don't think anybody thought there was any chance he could play and he got, uh, I forget how many but close to a Coliseum record against Villanova on really on one ankle so I've been blessed Alright, another tough category for your career your top defender. Well, I've had two guys who have been National Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, Javon Carter, two-time National Defensive Player of the Year. And they're different. You know, uh, J.C. was a terrific on-the-ball defender. Uh, great hands. Set records everywhere for, for steals. But then it was hard to score when we had Kenyon Martin in the hole. I can remember Bobby Luch telling his guys don't go in there. We're shooting all jump shots. And if you get a rebound, throw it back out or dribble it back out because he's going to block it again. So, I mean, and, and I, it's hard to, you know, one was, one was a guy defending the rim. The other guy was putting incredible pressure on the ball away from the rim. So those two guys, Javon Carter, Kenny Martin. How about your top rebounder? I, I, I think that's, that's between two guys, really. I think Devin Williams. Had Devin stayed his senior year, he would have been one of four guys in the history of West Virginia basketball to score over a thousand points and get over a thousand rebounds. And then he just got every every big rebound for us uh, in in his time. But you know, so did Danny Fortune. Danny rebounded everything. Had the best pair of hands of anybody I've ever coached. How about your ultimate glue guy? <laughs> It's hard to uh, it's hard to come up with like one uh, Kenyon obviously, and Kenyon knew every set of every team that we played. He would tell the guy he was guarding he was in the wrong spot and put him over where he was supposed to be. Aside from you know not letting anybody get close to the basket, and and and, and I think that the Paul game stands out to me to where I said uh, if anybody shoots it before Kenyon touches it, you're never going to play again. <laughs> And he put on the most incredible performance that I've ever seen. I think Dick Vitale said one of the great, if not the greatest performance he's ever seen to come back from a big deficit and win. And he was the guy who just, he held everybody together. And that was a great, great team. But people forget 
we started 2.2 freshman guards and Demar Johnson and Kenny Satterfield. And Kenyon held those guys, held those guys together. He was great for those guys. He was a great, great teammate, as was Deshaun Butler, as was Devon Carter. All right, once again, I think we're going to have some repeats here, but uh, basketball IQ, who would fit that? I could have just wrote down Kenyon Martin for like, you know, know. <laughs> nine out of ten, you know. But but Ken had a had a great still does, has a great basketball intellect and, and really understands the game and um I mean he has just a world of physical ability, but he also had a great basketball IQ. Deshaun Butler had a great basketball IQ. Not good, great. And so did Steve Logan. I mean, you think about Steve Logan being five foot nine and doing what he did. I mean, he was far and away, hands down, the best player in Conference USA, and found ways to get us baskets. Uh, was a was a, a great passer. Just had a great feel of how to play basketball. All right, the last category. Once again, I know we're going to have some similar names, uh, but who would be the captain? Well, Kenyon, because I mean. Everybody looked up to Kenyon. Kenyon knew what he was doing. He he made great plays, and he knew what other people were supposed to be doing. And he helped him. He was a great teammate. Would there be anyone else in that? Oh, there'd be a lot of guys. Logan was that way. Uh, Deshaun was that way. Uh, Deshaun was was a lot that way. Uh, Steve Logan was that way. I'm sure there were a, a lot of others. Uh, along the way. I've been blessed, man. I've had not just great basketball players, but incredible people. They're they're, they're great, great people. And they've certainly gone on to do very good things. So you you should uh, feel very proud of that as well. And they've got incredible loyalty uh, to you, which I think is um, always a tribute to your coaching uh, and the way that you've... uh, you know, um, demanded of them, but always with passion and, you know, love at the same time, never demeaning. Uh, and, and it shows by their appreciation and love and support for you, certainly over the years, wherever you've been. And I would say that goes for your staff too. incredibly loyal staff and people that count you as a mentor and a friend forever. Well, again, Andy, I've been blessed. I, I, I've been blessed. I, I went to Kansas state and I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I, I went and we were about two weeks into practice and coach Snyder came in and uh, we talked for a minute. He said, you know, your staff reminds me of the staff that I had when I first came to K state. And he started naming the guys that he had and he named about five or six guys that were high powered, uh, Division One football guys that were, I mean, you, their teams were in the top twenty year after year after year, and he said these guys you got out here are going to be exactly the same. And he was he was absolutely right. When you look at the guys that I had on that staff and where they are today, absolutely incredible. So, you know, I guess when uh, when it says head coach after your name before your name, whatever, you get a lot of credit. But in a lot of instances, you don't deserve all the credit that you get because it, 
it's certainly spread around with the guys that you're fortunate enough to have on your staff. Well, Hugs, um, I always enjoy, you know, catching up with you. Uh, most importantly, stay safe, and hopefully we'll be talking about basketball here sooner than later. Well, Andy, I think we're going to. Uh, I think there's just too much too much invested not to. And I think it's going to have a lot to do with what happens probably with the professional teams in football. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Before I let you go, if all things are equal and we have a season as we expect, especially with what you got coming back, what do you think of your squad? I think we're pretty good. I think I think we're pretty good. You know, if everybody if everybody maintains the attitudes that they had certainly at the end of the year and 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 throughout the summer. I mean, we're we're as talented as as I've had a team in quite some time. Well, Bob, I appreciate it. Stay safe and we'll talk soon. Sounds good, Andy. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. And now it's time for Cats Ranks, the top 10 clutch players in March Madness the last 10 years. Let's start at number 10. Deron Lamb from Kentucky from 2012. All right, this is going to surprise some people because Anthony Davis, as dominant a player as he was, wasn't the main player in that game in terms of clutch. Lamb had 22 in that game. Uh, And so, you know, I want to pick someone from that game uh, when they won the national championship over Kansas. And, you know, he was incredibly clutch in that game. So I'm going Deron Lamb. At number nine, Marcus Page from North Carolina in 2016. So look, Page had, and Roy Williams said this on our podcast, maybe the most difficult shot in Carolina NCAA history it might have been the most important one, which forced Chris Jenkins, we'll get to that momentarily, uh, to have the game winner. But the double clutch three-pointer in front of the bench was a momentous shot for Marcus Page, and it was clutch. I got him at number nine. Jalen Brunson, Villanova 2018. They could count on him. Didn't need to hit a game winner for that championship for Nova, but I'm going with Jalen Brunson. At number seven, Tyus Jones from Duke in 2015. You got to think about who to pick off of that run. Justice Winslow, Julio Okafor, Grayson Allen was great down the stretch in those last five minutes against Wisconsin, but I'm going with Tyus Jones as the most clutch player on that Duke team. At number six, Aaron Harrison from Kentucky. Um, He had a big-time shot, three-pointer, to knock off Wisconsin. I would argue Wisconsin was probably the best team in that Final Four in 2014. Harrison hits the shot. Kentucky ends up losing the national championship to UConn. More on that momentarily. But I I think Harrison was clutch. At number five, Carson Edwards from Purdue in 2019. Oh, was he clutch. Think about what he did to get Purdue within a whisker of their Final Four that didn't happen before the unbelievable way that Diakite converts at the buzzer to force overtime. But Carson Edwards was phenomenal down that stretch. So I got him as a clutch player, putting him in number five. Number four, Shabazz Napier, UConn, 2014, the run of the national championship. He was just something special. In a year that was, you know, a little crazy, they were, you know, not expected to get there at all. They end up winning the national championship. Uh, not the best team, and Napier leads. And number three, 
Kyle Guy from Virginia 2019, the redemption year. After losing to UMBC 16-1, Kyle Guy down the stretch, hits a monster three, has the three free throws, combination between Auburn and Texas Tech games. He was so clutch down the stretch, national champ. Now, Chris Jenkins checks in at number two for Villanova in 2016. Um, he did hit the shot, maybe the greatest clutch shot of all time. Wasn't as clutch overall, but I still think it's deserving of being in the top two because it won a national championship. Some would say number one, but to me, in terms of a clutch player, I'm going with Kemba Walker from UConn in 2011. His run in the national championship, you could go back, even though we're talking March Madness, but think about what he did in the Big East. Uh, that's why I'm including Kemba Walker. His run, that whole postseason run, was phenomenal. And to me, in the last 10 years, he's the most clutch player in college basketball in March Madness. And now joining me here, March Madness 365, Kellen Grady from Davidson. And Kellen, um, read a very fascinating story that Rob Doss from NBCSports.com did. Uh, as you know, I've been a big fan of yours for a number of years at Davidson. I've uh, been hyping you up, deservedly so, uh, under Bob McKillop there with the Wildcats. Um, but I want to touch base on a couple of things. Clearly, your care project, but even more than that, before we get to that, um, Tell me about the social justice sort of uh, genes that have run through your family dating back to your grandmother in South Africa. When did you learn about her, you know, her passion for social justice, for change in South Africa? So I've always um, had knowledge of what um, my grandparents did um, for South Africa in, in fight for equality and to end apartheid. Um, I was more conscious of it as I got into high school and, and especially as I got into college. Um, the candor of conversations with my mother and father informing um, my brother, sister and me on their family's revolutionary history um, increased as I got into college. And, you know, with the climate of our country right now, it, it's that calling has kind of hit home for me more. Um, and, you know, my grandmother's still alive and, and she's an exemplary um, figure of, of fighting for, for racial justice. So her name's Sophia Williams. Um, what did she tell you about what it was like in Pretoria? Well, it, I know it took a lot of courage and, you know, it was obviously against opposing circumstances, the, the entire play to South Africa at the time against apartheid. And she was one of only four women to lead a march of 20,000 women. So for her, it was uh, a real moment of courage, but with a vision ahead. And I think that makes fighting for justice easier and, and even more inspiring, I think, when you see a vision. And I think in, in our case now, a lot of Americans do see a vision and see the, the potential for change. What has she said about the similarities? I mean, we, you know, um, we weren't living and haven't been under apartheid, but obviously systemic racism, you know, has been there for 400 years uh, in the United States. And um, we've gone through different stages, obviously. Uh, and this is now a new stage of trying to break, um, uh, you know, a, a number of 
the wrongs that we've seen even since the civil rights movement in the 60s? What has she told you in terms of the comparisons? So we haven't addressed um, the comparisons, you know, in our communication as definitively, but the the overall concept of, you know, prejudicial treatment and, and marginalization exists in, in both scenarios. And I know she's proud to see, you know, her daughter's kid fighting for, uh, you know, a similar cause as to her. I mean, it, for me, I'm not, you know, an activist and, and, and I haven't lived in exile. My grandfather, her husband was um, on the run for years and living under an alias. So it, it's, there's perspective to this. And obviously she was, you know, her efforts took a different amount of courage and it was under different circumstances, but the overall circumstance of injustice remains consistent and, and we can both relate to that. So tell me about your program care. So care is a, um, is an initiative that I started with Stacy Gallon, who's the founder of the Maimonides Institute. And, um, she and I partnered and, and our goal is to raise awareness about systemic racial injustice and hopes for change. And in our effort to promote the, the proper message of human dignity and respect, regardless of race. And one of our initial calls to action is going to be our effort to help empower and educate the younger generation. And I think it's part of our duty as athletes to, to participate in community outreach. And considering the how much of the NCAA is made up of minorities and black athletes in particular, I that, that's what inspired me to to look to help people and educate people on issues that matter. You know, as we're talking, I'm just thinking about education and uh, lack thereof on a global scale, uh, even, you know, as it relates to South Africa, um, you know, and how what transpired with Nelson Mandela is still not taught probably as much as it should be. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, I'm just talking out loud. It's just it's, it, it, we go back to our own education, you know, that I went through in the 80s and 90s and 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 what we're seeing today and how U.S. history is sort of just always skims the top. It's not taught in a three-dimensional form. And so many things are omitted that we actually have to have African-American studies programs versus a true U.S. history. Um, so yeah, there's education that needs to be redone across the board. Uh, and hopefully that will occur. Tell me about, um, you know, you grew up in Boston. Um, you go to Davidson. You're still there. Uh, I mean, how would you describe what your life has been like, um, you know, in Boston, in the Boston area and at Davidson with regards to injustice or just in, in, in general. Yeah. Just, I mean, like, you know, how often maybe you did feel, um, where there might be potential, you know, like you had to be even more, I mean, you have no history of any wrongdoings or anything, but always just, you know, uh, a little bit more on guard, uh, and maybe in different, you know, surroundings, it just seems like there's this awakening and this empowerment by athletes now to speak on. I've talked to countless ones over the last couple months and stories are coming out constantly about how, you know, whether or not they're on campus and always having to make sure that they are above reproach just because they might be treated differently, certainly by law enforcement. Um, and, you know, everyone now is feeling empowered to share these stories and conversations are happening with their coaching staffs, with their fellow teammates and saying, look, this is what has happened to me. This is how I feel. And I want to express that. Yeah. So for, for me in, um, growing up in Boston and this is, um, 
actually pretty personal for me because my brother has now been a police officer for three and a half weeks in the city of Boston. Um, but the police force is, is relatively progressive despite some of its city's history of, of racism. And in my city myself, I haven't experienced um, too many instances, but across my life and in, in, in traveling and in, in Davidson, um, there have been a lot of instances of, you know, what, what I would attribute to, you know, racial profiling that, that I've, um, that either me or close friends of mine have experienced. And I think blatant racism you see in, in, in pockets of the country more so than others. But what's been particularly evident to me is that it's, it's very existent and implicit bias, um, you know, towards white people you see on an everyday level in minor actions that can easily be racially implicated. I think that's just something I've been more cognizant of as I've gotten older. And, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate reality, but I think it's something that a lot of people have experienced and it's worse for certain people in certain situations, but, you know, just instances of being pulled over or, or being followed by a police officer. Um, you know, I, I have some anecdotal evidence of instances like that just within the last few months. Um, and it's unfortunate, but I, I do, I do see, um, the passion and the anger in so many people, which gives me optimism about the chance for some sort of change. What I love about your head coach is he is, and has always been an educator as well as a coach. And, um, you know, taking your team to Auschwitz, you know, a lot of these trips overseas are just about, you know, the games and the fun and, I can't remember a time where a team took a trip specifically for education like that. Uh, what's what can you say about that? That thread that goes through from McKillop on down at Davidson. Yeah, it, it was, um, I think, an exemplary thing for a coach to do for his program. And during the our political climate, with the rhetoric that's been deemed appropriate from. Our president and his base, I think it's even, it was even more imperative for us to do that. And it was a humbling experience for all of us because, you know, heritage and, and history inform still today. And, and for us to put the Holocaust and, and the suffering of, of so many Jewish people in perspective and, and get torn by a survivor, one of the Mangalite twins of survivor, even Moses Core, was um, a really eye-opening experience. And, and it, it, it broaden our, our knowledge on um, human rights issues. And I think for me, it, it, it added perspective for me on a daily basis about educating myself and being more aware of um, of people suffering. And Stacey Gallon, who's the woman who helped coordinate that trip, is who I ended up partnering with um, to, to, to launch our, our CARE initiative. Um, so that trip, in a, in a lot of ways, has has affected me in, in tremendous ways in terms of looking to help affect change because I saw what that trip did for me. And now I see the effects that our country's situations are having on me. And that's a great example where what we're seeing now since George Floyd's murder, it can't just be the African-American community that demands change. It has to be everybody. And that's a great example where um, it can't just be Jews who are trying to say, hey, look, Look what happened. It has to be everyone that says never again. Exactly. You know, and so we all have to take a part as 
not Americans, but as human beings to try to prevent that. Um, I just want to segue one other thing here, and that is once we get back on campus, all these things that are happening have been happening without students being on campus. We, we know that college campuses always are great places for shared thought and you know, hopefully diversity of opinion. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, rallies and protests and things like that. Um, as I said, student athletes are feeling more empowered than ever before that you can speak up without any kind of reprisal or anything like that. What do you think, and at the same time we have COVID-19 going on, but what do you think life could and will be like when college students and student athletes are on campus, you know, in some large mass next year? I think it's going to be a life of adjustments for us as college students. I think there's going to be, we're going to have to equate to a new normal. And I think it's going to be perhaps even more of a sensitive new normal, given the circumstances, um, social situations going on in our country. And I think um, there's going to be people that are walking on eggshells and will be unwilling to have the uncomfortable conversation that I think is essential to have. And I think there's going to be people that are willing to embrace the uncomfortability that a lot of people are are experiencing and have these conversations and then it will make for a more productive social environment at colleges. Um, it, it's unfortunate that we're having to be socially distant and wearing masks and all that will affect them just normal social interactions. But I think that's a challenge for all of us to uphold that aspect for the safety of you know us and our peers. But also I think it's important for college campuses to embrace our circumstances and to have productive and meaningful conversation when we get back to campus. I think that will make for better social environments on college campuses, you know, relative to our situation and restrictions. Last thing, and this is a hard segue. So just on the court, um, you guys got better as the year went on. Obviously there was a lot, a lot of hype at the beginning of the season. There's a lot of injuries. Um, all things being equal, if we have the season we expect, what do you expect with Davidson next season? Uh, I expect us to be at the top of the Atlantic 10 fighting for an NCAA tournament berth. I think um, we've got guys that are a year better, a year older, and a year more experienced. I think we faced a whirlwind of adversity last year, losing um, Keyshawn and Luke, uh, both physically on the court, but also that's a you know, an emotional, um, that had an emotional effect on us as, as teammates. We're all, we were all very close with Keyshawn and Luke. So we didn't just lose the chemistry of their contribution on the court, but also, you know, they're affecting us in the locker room. Nonetheless, I think we got a lot of guys that are, like I said, you know, a whole year's more experience, you know, four months after the season, it's been a lot of time for guys to stay active and get stronger. I know a lot of our guys have been doing that. And I expect us to be very competitive in the Atlantic 10. And, and our goal is to win an Atlantic 10 championship. Well, Kellen, I uh, really appreciate you taking some time here to chat with me. Um, you're doing wonderful things. And uh, you're helping this world and this country and your area become a better place. So I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us and listening to our latest March Madness 365. As always, I appreciate and thank you for the continued engagement. You can always go to NCAA.com. We've got our archived podcasts, our incredible team at Turner Sports, Chad Acock, Michael Kaplan, Abby Stoltz, 
Sean Bartley, everyone that is putting together this podcast and then the work that everyone does at NCAA.com. Greatly appreciate all their work, churning this out from their home offices throughout the course of the last four months. So thank you again for constantly engaging with us and listening on a weekly basis. Most importantly, everyone, stay safe. We'll talk to you next week.